from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. These people were really good correspondents. You think that was because they, they kind of had to be. Right, and I think, um, you know, of course, with a text or even an email, we're writing it very quickly. But when you're composing a letter handwritten, I think you spend more time getting your thoughts together. Dear Mrs. Chopin, what in the name of Jupiter did you do when you read the review of The Awakening in this AM's Globe? He drivels and drools along over the page, just as though words were solely intended for idiots' tongues. Column reads like some mental cow had kicked over a bucket of type. As ever, Lewis. I'm Sarah Fenske. Handwritten letters are some of the Missouri History Museum's most treasured artifacts. And so next month, when archivist Dennis Northcutt presents interesting and amusing documents from the museum's collection, two fascinating collections of letters will be at the center. And Dennis Northcott joins us now with a preview. Dennis, welcome back. Nice to be here. So, Dennis, you're going to be sharing these documents with an audience on April 19th. Was it hard to narrow down what to feature? Uh, yes, I get this presentation fairly often, and I'm always mixing in new documents because I'm constantly finding new ones. I have a list of at least 500 of my quote-unquote favorite documents. 500 favorites. And so when we say something's your favorite, it's your favorite this week. Right. So I don't quite get to 500 in my hour-long presentation. <laughs> yeah, I, I imagine that. I just mix that. and match my favorites at the moment. Well, so we're going to talk about some of your favorites of the moment today, and there's such interesting stuff in here. We're going to talk about two different collections. Now, the first set dates back to the first months of the Civil War. This began in April of 1861. The Confederates fired on Fort Sumter. What pressure did that put on the munitions stockpile that was known as the St. Louis Arsenal? Okay, so in early May of um, 1861, the governor of Missouri, uh, the governor of Missouri, Claiborne Fox Jackson, he sent the state militia forces under his care to St. Louis for their annual drilling. And they set up this camp at Lindell Grove on the far western outskirts of St. Louis at the intersection of Grand and Olive. Oh, where, so far west. Yeah, where yes. St. Louis University now sits. And they named the camp in honor of the governor, Camp Jackson. So in the meantime, the Union or federal sources were stationed at the U.S. arsenal along the Mississippi, where Anheuser-Busch now sits, just about. And most of the forces at the arsenal were from the, were from the local German immigrant community. There had been a great deal of German immigration to St. Louis in the 1850s. And there are rumors swirling around town that the forces at the at Camp Jackson were planning to attack the arsenal. Because they cap- wanted these guns. Right. But before that could happen, on May 10th of 1861, the Union troops, under the command of Captain Nathaniel Lyon, marched out to Camp Jackson, surrounded the camp, and forced their surrender. And as these troops, these Germans, were being marched as prisoner to the arsenal, the local populace came out to see what was going on. And in many places, they were angry because it was their friends and relatives who had been captured. So some insults were hurled against the German troops, and ultimately gunfire erupted, and about 30 people were killed, mostly civilians, and it became known as the Battle of Camp Jackson. But those sympathetic to the Southern cause sometimes called it the Camp Jackson Massacre. The Camp Jackson Massacre. Okay, that's some pretty loaded language right there. And right here in the streets of St. Louis. Yeah, and like the center of town almost. I mean, St. Louis University. So there was a woman named Alice Caton. Am I saying that right? Caton, I think, Caton, okay. And so she was there on May 10th, 1861, when all this is going down, almost in midtown St. Louis. Um, What was she doing there? 
So she was just a spectator. Like like I said, many of the populace, once the um, state militia forces had been captured and gave up their arms, it was presumed that nothing was going to happen. So the local populace came out to watch. So she was just a, a bystander, a witness. So I'm hoping you can read a couple paragraphs from this letter she wrote. These are pretty good. Sure. Here you go. Alice came to her brother, May 12, 1861. The soldiers fired into a crowd of citizens, killing about 18 or 20 and wounding many others. I cannot describe the scene to you fully. Imagine to yourself all of those hills surrounding the grove filled with people, for as soon as it was known that the Minutemen had surrendered their arms, it was natural to suppose that there would be no fighting. And just as soon as this company commenced firing, the multitude commenced running. Men, women, and children were there, some in carriages, buggies, on horseback, and on foot, Everybody from Aunt Nancy's in our house, with the exception of Mother, was out there. Emma and Charlie were there. Dora was there and was knocked down by a man and then run over by a horse and buggy. She was severely bruised but was likely to have no bones broken. I never was so frightened in all my life before. It was all done so unexpectedly and so uncalled for. Hmm. So this is Alex, uh, Alice Caton's perspective on this. Do we know anything about where Alice's sympathies lied? Well, you can tell from the letter, maybe you can't for this one, but she was sympathetic to the Southern cause. So oh, she was okay. pretty angry about this. So this is what it felt very uncalled for right, uh, as right, far as exactly. Alice was concerned. So her emotions in this letter are so strong. How important is it to have these documents that, you know, are sort of first person accounts of I'm standing here, here's what I'm feeling? Oh, it, it's critical. And of course, we've got countless thousands of documents, not only about the Civil War, but all aspects of St. Louis history in our archives at the Library and Research Center. Um, and it just it gives you that firsthand perspective of what people were thinking and feeling about certain events. And now when you think of today, here we send texts and emails and phone calls and such. And what are historians 100 years from now going to think about when they research our time? They're probably not going to have access. I mean, who writes letters now? Yeah. But Seems like a real shame. Right, right. And people, of course, over time have written letters. And sometimes those letters have migrated to our collections or to other repositories as well. Yeah, it's pretty cool. You know, Alice's letter mentions a 14-year-old girl. This was someone named Emily Summers. She was among those killed during this incident. I understand you also have the coroner's inquest uh, for the death of this young woman. Right. So we have the record book, about a 300-page letter ledger of a man named um, Louis Charles Boilinier, who was a St. Louis County coroner. So every day when there was a death of um, suspicious causes, he would go out and investigate. So it was in date order, and he would record the name of the person who died um, and how they died and where they died. And there's an inquest, an entry for Emily Summers, this 14-year-old girl. And it also gives the name of the four witnesses who provided testimony to tell the coroner how she died. And three of the witnesses are named Summers, so clearly it's her family members oh, wow. giving the testimony to the coroner about how this poor 14-year-old had been killed. And this coroner, I understand there's kind of an interesting backstory with this guy, too. What, yeah. what happened to his career? So he, um, there's a little notation, a handwritten notation at the end of his volume that says, I would have held this office until August 1862 had I not refused to take the ironclad oath. So when the Union gained control in St. Louis later in 1861, they were concerned about people sympathetic to the South. So they passed a law saying if you would 
if you held public office, you had to sign a loyalty oath to the union in order to retain your job. And this guy's a Confederate sympathizer. He wouldn't sign it. Right. He refused and he was kicked out of office. Wow. So these are some good details and all so documented. I mean, this is not hearsay. You've got all the aspects of this all there in writing. And what's great about this story of Emily Summers is you have a personal letter describing it, and then it's corroborated by this government document, which is always interesting. And as you mentioned, this is not your only letter about this this incident. There's a woman named Euphrasia Pettis who wrote to her sister two weeks after the same incident. Where were Euphrasia's loyalties? Oh, you'll see they're on the same side. Shall I read read a bit of it? Yes, please, please. Until we have a force equal to engage with them, there can be no resistance. Frank Blair is dictator. He has assembled troops from all parts of Illinois and stationed them at Belleville, Caseyville, Alton, St. Charles, all within an hour's ride, and if the slightest show of resistance is made, we will be crushed out. My blood boils in my veins when I think of the position of Missouri held in the Union at the point of Dutchman's bayonets. So this Frank Blair, Frank Blair is a dictator. Who's she talking about So there? he was a U.S. congressman from St. Louis, and he was ardently pro-Union. He was instrumental in keeping Missouri in the Union during the Civil War. And incident- incidentally, his brother, Montgomery Blair, Blair, was the postmaster general in Abraham Lincoln's cabinet. And Frank later became a general in the, U- in the UN- Union Army. Um, and you can actually see his statue in Forest Park at the corner of um, King's Highway in Lindell. Hmm. If you ever see that statue, that's Frank Blair That's Jr. Frank Blair, yeah. the, the dictator. dictator. Exactly. But it sounds like modern audiences might more be on Frank Blair's side. Yeah, it depends things. on what side you're well, on. Well, exactly. that's true. <laughs> still, the debate continues to wage today. So these two letters, um, both with perspective on this, this bloody incident that happened here in the middle of St. Louis, what's one of your takeaways um, from these two different accounts? Well, it's just important to gather, and in addition to the coroner's record book, it's just important to gather all the different perspectives you possibly can as a historian or just somebody who has an interest in events in the past so you can get um, the best possible complete perspective of what happened. But it's just fascinating to read the accounts written in these Handwritten, handwritten letters. It's yeah. just fantastic. So those are an interesting set of documents right there. A second set of letters that you're going to be featuring in this talk. And again, that talk is, is April 19th. It's going to be given by Dennis Northcott, who's an archivist at the Missouri History Museum and is my guest today. This goes back to a bit before the Civil War, to something that happened on November 1st, 1855. What was the eagerly anticipated and then tragic event that so day? So in early or in 1855, the railroad had finally extended as far west as Jefferson City from St. Louis. So it was cause for great celebration. It's a huge deal. Let's get that railroad to Jeff City. Right. So the inaugural trip on November 1st was filled with the mayor and all these dignitaries um, traveling to Jeff City for the first trip. And But it didn't go as planned, as you'll read in this letter in just a moment. Yeah, so this letter actually comes from, from somebody who survived what ended up being an epic crash. And I mean epic in a bad way, not in the, the YouTube sense of things. Uh, this is Edward S. Lewis. Can you read us an excerpt? Sure. He's writing November 2nd, the day after, and it's headline at the Gasconade River near Herman. And he writes, Give thanks to a merciful providence that I am yet alive and well. I hardly know yet how to realize that I did not share the fate of these mangled bodies here around me, which but a few hours ago were in the full enjoyment of life, health, and hope. You have no doubt heard of the shocking catastrophe which occurred here yesterday. The whole train of 12 cars was precipitated a distance of 30 feet down through the bridge over the Gasconade River. Nearly all the cars are torn to atoms. 
The one in which I was is so splintered up that one could hardly tell that the pieces were ever together in any shape. It is literally shattered into little strips and splinters. How I escaped seems a miracle. Most of those who were killed were in the same car and the one next to it. This is a remarkable document. I mean, this guy, Edward S. Lewis, I mean, he saw some incredible stuff, and it sounds like he wrote this in the immediate aftermath. Right, right, the day after this horrible accident, which came to be known as the Gasconade train disaster. Yeah. About 30 people were killed. 30 people were killed, and he describes, I mean, he, this guy's a really good writer. He kind of, like, describes this scene so vividly. And I think you found that in the previous letters, too, the, in the 19th century and into the early 20th century, I guess, for lots of periods. Um, the writing is just spectacular, looking back at it from our age. When I think of emails or texts I receive, it doesn't sound like these letters too often. Yeah, <laughs> no offense people, to my friends. <laughs> these people were really good correspondents. You think that was because they, they kind of had to be. Right. And I think, um, you know, of course, with a text or even an email, we're writing it very quickly. But when you're composing a letter handwritten, I think you spend more time getting your thoughts together. Yeah. And it sounds like this guy was almost like in a state of shock over what he had witnessed. Right. In fact, there's another excerpt of the letter that he says um, he had just moved to another part of the car to get better light in reading a newspaper. Oh, wow. And then after the accident, the man in the seat right in front of him, he said he was shockingly mangled. So he kind of realized that had he not had the good fortune of moving to another car, to get better light to read his newspaper, he likely would have been killed. Wow. That is quite a survivor's account. I can see why this letter, this can't just be your favorite this week. This has to be like a perpetual favorite <laughs> it, right it's here. It's up there. It's, it's a um, regular feature in this talk. Yes. Okay. This is, a, this is a pretty good letter. And this letter actually has a connection to one of St. Louis's greatest authors. How right. so? That's Kate Chopin is a famous St. Louis author. She wrote the famous novel, The Awakening. But her father, Thomas O'Flaherty, was actually killed in the Gasconade Bridge disaster. And Kate Chopin actually wrote a short story called The Story of an Hour, which talks about a man who was killed in a railroad accident. Mm. So she uses that bit of her personal history to factor into one of her stories. And how old was she when this affected her family? Oh, so she would have been about five years old. Okay. Mm -hmm. So she's very young. So we don't have letters from her, like not real-time letters that that she wrote back in 1855. you do have a letter that was sent to her on a much lighter note, I should preface. This is not related to this rail crash. Uh, The connection, of course, is that she lost her father in this rail crash. But there's a note that you got your hands on that uh, she held on to, and it was in her papers? Right, right. So at the Library and Research Center, we have a collection of Kate Chopin's papers. And by the way, one of my colleagues has just indexed, or digitized, rather, all those documents. So you can view them on our website. But when her novel, The Awakening, was debuted in 1899, in some corners it was not well received. Really? I mean, this has since like become one of like the great feminist classics. Right. Kind of from the 1960s towards the present, it's become it's been revisited and has become regarded as a classic. But it wasn't so when it first um, was released. But her friend, Louis B. Ely, um, shares a letter with her upon reading the review of The Awakening in the, in the newspaper. Okay. And this is Louis B. Ely. Do we know anything about this guy who we're about to hear his very vivid voice? Right. He was an attorney at this time, but he was also a playwright. So that's okay. probably the connection. They were probably friends because they had similar interest in writing. Okay. So a fellow writer and an attorney, Louis B. Ely, wrote this letter to Kate Chopin. Let, let's hear it. Yeah. And you'll see he has some clearly has some good writing ability. Dear Mrs. Chopin, 
What in the name of Jupiter did you do when you read the review of the awakening in this AM's globe? For fear you have not seen it, I enclose it. I have just read it coming down on the car. Provide yourself with ammonia salts, brandy, etc. before you start to read it. You have had, or will have, hysterics, I'm sure. I didn't know that there was such a fool in the world as the writer of that article. He drivels and drools along over the page, just as though words were solely intended for idiots' tongues to splash in like a frolicsome infant in the soap suds. The column reads like some mental cow had kicked over a bucket of type. As ever, Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> I hope my laughing was not distracting to people in the course of this letter because this is just a great letter. Right. And of course, like I said before, who gets a letter or an email today or a text more uh, even that has such um, colorful language? Yeah, as if some mental cow had kicked over a bucket of type. Right. I haven't gotten any text quite that good in a while. He's refu- referring to a review that was in the Morning Globe. Are we talking about the Globe Democrat? Right, the Globe Democrat, correct. And yeah. does this review still exist? Yeah, in fact, um, there's a website, a subscription database called newspapers.com, which our library subscribes to, and a lot of the St. Louis newspapers are digitized, including the Democrat from 1853 to 1963. It's some point it became the Globe Democrat. I think it was the Globe Democrat at this time. So what's your take? I mean, was Lewis B. Ely correct? And and this book critic was just, uh, well, this was like, you know, it was intended for idiots' tongues to splash in <laughs> like a frolicsome infant in the soap suds? I was guess, it like that, Dennis? I, I guess it's just up to your opinion, you know. <laughs> there's, there's different opinions on literature, of course. Yeah, I mean, did it seem like a review that is kind of held up to the test of time? Yeah, no, I didn't think, I just read the, art, uh, the review the other day, and I didn't think it was all that critical. I had read that some were much worse, and there were some that were positive as well, I'm sure. Um, But he was just offering a little support for in this time of reading this critical account. And so you guys got this because you have Kate Chopin's papers. Right, right. So this is part of Kate Chopin's papers. And oftentimes what happens is... um, Somebody has some personal papers, and then their their descendants will find them in the attic or something and call us to donate them. But in this case, the papers of, this, of Kate Chopin were actually given to a man who was writing his doctoral thesis in Pennsylvania back in the 1930s. So it ended up in a Pennsylvania repository. And then in the 1950s, the Chopin family contacted them, and one of the letters returned to St. Louis, and they came here. And so they got them, them. and did they then donate them to the museum? Right, and then they were donated to us, right. I feel like often we hear these days that, you know, universities are bidding big sums of money to get their hands on these letters. I mean, is the fact that you just got them donated, was this the family's own? altruism? Or was this the fact that she was not so respected in her own time as she's since grown to become venerated? Oh, that's a good point, because they were donated um, to us in the 50s. So Hmm. maybe it was before she was deemed, you know, what she is now as this famous American author. Yeah. Um, But yeah, we get donations all the time, which is ever since our founding back in 1866, which is how our collections have been built up over the years. And you mentioned these letters or or the Chopin papers are all now digitized. Are there other gems in there that are as good as this. Um, there is another letter by um, Lewis B. Ely. Now, one thing um, some budding writers might um, enjoy in the collection is there are some rejection letters she s- received from publishers. Boy, there's nothing writers like more than seeing that another writer has suffered. So I feel right. like that would actually be quite popular. And, and someone of her stature as well. Yeah. So it gives hope to all these other writers out there. It perhaps. really does. So that's that's something you might recommend people take a look at. Right, right. There's also a diary in there as well, which I can't recall too much about. I think it was when she was traveling in Europe. And and you mentioned there's another letter from Lewis B. Ely. Does it have the same uh, sort of wonderful rollicking tone? Um, I, I didn't 
added in my list of ones I read all the time, so it probably wasn't quite wasn't as good quite as this one. Wasn't quite as good. But okay. this one's kind of a classic in my view. Well, Dennis, you have some um, some great documents to share. You're going to be showing off even more at this event on April 19th. Will people be able to see the actual documents there? No, it's going to be a PowerPoint presentation. So I'll be showing images of lots of documents and then telling the associated stories about them. And so people can see the handwriting. They're not going to be able to touch the page, but they'll be able to see things in a way that today we're just sort of relying on your sure, voice. Sure, sure. You'll be able to see the handwritten documents, um, which sometimes are challenging, but I've transcribed them in most cases, so, so and I'll you, read along with them. You've kind of become a pro at taking this handwriting and, and turning it into something that we can read. Right, right. Well, this is quite an event. Uh, I, I know a lot of people are going to be excited to see this. We have links to the original documents online as well in our coverage. That's stlonair.show, as well as a bunch of information about this event for anybody who would want to attend. Dennis Northcott, Thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Good to be here. And Dennis is an archivist for the Missouri History Museum. He'll present later this month um, on site at the History Museum. The title of his presentation is Interesting and Amusing Documents. That's underselling just how good these documents are. (laughs) That's happening on Tuesday, April 19th at 11 a.m. Again, there's full details on our website. That's stlonair.show. This episode was produced by Danny Wisentowski with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.